grateful this morning for the lamb that was slain for each of us. Father, we think of Christmas, we think of the greatest gift ever given was Jesus coming to be born of a virgin, the God-man, to live a sinless life, to pay our sin debt upon the cross, to die, but to resurrect, to ascend, to be glorified. And Father, we just thank you so much for this marvelous gift now that he offers to us of salvation. And Father, when we think about it, as the song taught us, Lord, the only gift you're looking for from us is for us to give of ourselves, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, well-pleasing to you. Father, may we learn that this is worship. This is what it means to present our life. And Lord, as we come to the word now, I thank you for God the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. Father, I just pray you'll speak to us and through us. In my weakness, be my strength. Lord, as I seek to teach, may I be taught. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, probably the most familiar passage on the advent of Christmas that we can find in the New Testament. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But I want to preach on Christmas, the challenge, the conviction, the conviction and the comfort. Christmas, the challenge, the conviction, and the comfort. And I love Christmas. I, I get into Christmas spirit about June. And uh, it's kind of funny to listen to me, listen to tapes on my car stereo because it's always Christmas music, even back in the early months of the year because it's just such a wonderful season of the year. And this is just a thrilling passage we're going to look at today. We're not going to look at verse by verse, but just some thoughts we want to draw out of it. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a season be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today, focus verse, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, if we would stop long enough in our busy lives to just think, just think about Christmas, it'd be incredible the change it would bring in your life. Now, you know I love to deer hunt. We just had one of our hunts this past week. Ron Williams was our cook, and we're still alive. It was amazing. We had a wonderful time. Went down and was with the guys Thursday and Friday and came back yesterday afternoon. One of the reasons I love the deer hunt, and may surprise you, and I know some of you don't, but we do, but one of the reasons I like to is just getting up in a tree. Get up about 25, 30, 35 feet, 19 degrees, you know the wind's blowing in your face. Stephen and my wife both have told me, Wayne, that is the stupidest thing I can think of, anything that you can do in life that has got to be the, the stupidest thing. But just to be up in there in that tree and just think, just think 
I want to tell you, folks, very little thinking goes on anymore. Just meditate. Push everything aside and just think. I, I love it. love to watch the world come alive. I, I was sitting there, I think it was Friday, and I was looking at the trees around me, and the, and the overwhelming thought was that, that Jesus came to die for me on a cross made out of wood like these trees that he himself created. Thoughts that I, I don't have normally. I'm just riding down the road. Usually there's too many things bombarding my brain. But just to back off and meditate and to think. If you think about Christmas this morning, what is it? If you've been to the mall lately, you haven't got a clue. What is it? What is Christmas? Think on it. Think on it. And I'll tell you what it'll do. It'll begin to immediately challenge your mind and your life. You know, here he is, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-existent. If you want to look over in John chapter 1 and verse 1, let's just make sure we understand what this season is all about. Wednesday's going to be in three days. We're going to celebrate Christmas. Are we ready to celebrate it? Can we celebrate it? Have we thought long enough about it? Have we refocused our life? John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The imperfect tense is used. There are many of the cults that try to make this whole passage from 1 through 14, the fact that Jesus was not God, he had to be created, had to be born. They don't even understand the tenses in the Greek language. The imperfect tense means he had no beginning and there was no end in sight. He just continued, continued, continued. He always has been. He was, he is, he always will be God. He was with him. He is God. He was God. He is God today. Now, that imperfect tense changes to the aorist tense when you come down to verse 14, and this is significant. The pre-existent Christ, without whom nothing would have been created, created everything in this world. Verse 14, look at it. And the Word, now who is God, with God, always has been God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Father, begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The aorist tense means at a certain point in time in history, historically it's been settled. Jesus, the preexistent God, always has been, became flesh. The Gnostic heresy went around during the days of the writers of the New Testament. And they said, hey, no, what happened was he entered a body. He didn't become flesh. God would have nothing to do with flesh. That was their argument. That was the Corinthian heresy. When 1 John was written, that's what John wrote against. It faced Paul when he wrote the book of Colossians to the church of Colossae. But the word of God did not say he entered a body. They said, oh no, he entered at his baptism and left at his crucifixion. Oh no, that's heresy. He became flesh. Now folks, that's the miracle. That's the incarnate Christ. And there's nothing in our minds that can be challenged anymore than when you start thinking, this is Christmas. God became flesh. You say, well, could he, did he have a body like ours? Similar. But the difference was, it was God and humanity so enmeshed together that there was no tendency whatsoever to sin. That was the difference. When Satan came to him to test him, to see if there was anything evil in him, he says there was nothing in him that he could draw out of him. But God became flesh. That's Christmas. That's what we celebrate. God's becoming flesh. You see, I love the King James Version sometimes when I read it. You say, oh, you don't like the King James Version. Wayne, you've been using the New American Standard all these years. I thought you was against the King James Version. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me what some people have said because we use the New American Standard Version. I go in some churches and they say, oh, if it's not the King James, buddy, good enough for Paul, good enough for John, I'll be good enough for me. 
Problem is, there was an English translation before the King James. What are you going to do with that? But anyway, I like the King James Version. I studied in the Texas Receptus because that's the Texas King James Version came out of. I just happen to like the New American Standard. I get sort of tired sometimes. I just don't enjoy a text that, that 360 some words have changed their complete meaning in all this time. That's why I use the New American Standard. But I love some of the verses rendered in the King James Version. How succinctly it says things. We talk about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 in the King James Version says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we talk about the lamb slain from the, from the foundation of the world. But folks, listen to me, listen to me. He couldn't be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world until he's the lamb born before the foundation of the world. He's got to be born physically before he can die physically on the cross. And that's what Christmas is all about. You can't have the crucifixion unless you have the miraculous, supernatural, incarnate birth of Jesus on this earth. Take some time and think about it. The miracle of what Christmas is all about. His birth has got to take place before his death. Well, I want us to focus on Luke chapter 2, 1 through 11 this morning. And there are three things that I want us to see about Christmas. It's, it's challenge, it's conviction, and it's comfort right out of this text. And I'm not going to follow it 1, 2, 3, 4. I just want to, the focus verse really is verse 11. That's what I want to focus on. But the first thing I want you to see is the supernatural circumstances of Christmas should challenge everyone in here. Now the angel's announcement in verse, verse 11 of chapter two to, to the shepherds of Luke chapter two. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now I wanna make a statement. If you accept the word of God to be the word of God, you accept this to be scripture, then automatically your brain is challenged because of what it just told you that God becomes flesh. A, a, a child is born. The fulfillment of what God, as we'll see in a moment, has already promised. But I also want to say this to you. If you believe this is inerrant, you've got to believe the rest is inerrant too. You can't pick and choose. It's not like a cafeteria line. If you don't believe this part of the scripture, then you really don't believe the part which says that Jesus was born of a virgin. But if you believe that to be scripture and believe what we have to be inerrant, inspired, and infallible, then that's going to lead you on a journey that will lead you right on into the kingdom because that's what it's all about. You've got to make up your mind. Do you believe the word of God to be the inerrant word of God? And if you do, you're already challenged by that verse about the birth of Jesus. It was promised in scripture. It was promised in scripture. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Born, now you understand birth, physical birth. He had to have flesh, got his humanity from the nation of Israel. But he's always been God, deity. Now, he's, he was born, promise. First, first promise of this is a veiled promise, but it's in Genesis chapter three. I want you to flip back. You know what happened in Genesis chapter three. That's the fall of man. And no wonder people are attacking the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You throw that out, you don't have any theology. You might as well just believe whatever you want to believe. All the roots are there in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That's where it all is. And the depravity of man, the fall of man, the sin that caused all of this is all found in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15. They've been caught. God knew it and God came in the garden and now he's speaking directly to the culprit who tempted Eve who later suggested to Adam, but Adam chose and sinned. He's talking to the devil himself. In Genesis 3 verse 15. And I will put enmity between you. Listen to what he says to the devil between you and the woman. This is very veiled. And between your seed and her seed, 
He, masculine singular pronoun, he shall bruise you on the head. There's going to be a child born of a woman, seed of the woman, going to be a, a male child, a man. He shall bruise you on the head, talking to the devil, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, you'll be able through the wickedness of men's hearts and because of what Adam has done, you'll be able to get into the cross and kill him. That's only bruising him on the heel. He, however, through that death and his resurrection will bruise you, Satan, on the head, destroy you is what that means. You destroy a serpent when you step on its head. You know, you think about that for a second. That was very veiled. When I was growing up, you know, the dark, a dark room kind of used to bother me. Uh, I don't know why. I'm just a big chicken, I guess. I, I just... Uh, you ever said a scared? How many of you have ever said a scared? Now, come on, now, come on. You know, it's supposed to be afraid or scared. <laughs> and I don't know why I grew up saying a scared. I don't understand that. That's something my brain didn't quite develop, and it just throws those words out. <laughs> be quiet, Bill. It, 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 it just sort of flipped. It doesn't work. A scared. But I started to say I was a scared of the dark. <laughs> I was afraid of the dark. <laughs> and you know how your mama would come to the door, and it's dark in that room. Man, you're monsters. I see shadows. And the, your mama comes, and she just opens the door just a little bit, just a little bit. Oh, how welcome that light is that comes in that dark room. You're so glad. That's Genesis 3.15. It doesn't tell you everything. It's very veiled. Just a little crack of the door. But I want to tell you something, folks. You continue to go through Scripture. That door gets wider and wider and wider. And Genesis 15, the covenant with Abraham, the everlasting covenant, and it just keeps on going. And, buddy, when you get to Matthew... Hebrews says in these last days, God has spoken through his son. The word spoken, Lalea, after the 400 years of silence, God broke the silence and he broke it with the birth of his son. And the door has swung wide open and light is everywhere. But the first promise of a child, a male child, born to a, of a woman, seed of the woman, and how he's going to destroy Satan and all that Satan can do is seen right there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It was promised beforehand. And what we're looking at in Luke chapter 2, this is the advent. This is the fulfillment of that promise. He would be God, the seed of woman. Well, you know, he had promised Mary this. The Holy Spirit had, or the angel had promised, God had sent an angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. You might want to look at that again. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Some people say, how do you explain this incarnate situation? How do you say that? She's a virgin. She's never known a man. How could she be impregnated by the Holy Spirit? How can that happen? I don't know. If I did, then I would, then God would be no bigger than my brain. But let me put it in this, this way. The seed of woman was united by the Spirit with the holy life of the Father to produce the incarnate Son. That's the best I can do. But somehow it took place. The preexistent God was birthed of a woman there in Bethlehem. It was promised. But it was also very providential. Oh, folks, if you can't see this, I just need to shake somebody this morning. God is sovereignly working here. Caesar Augustus threw out a census. He had no idea what he was doing. It was God who's behind the scenes orchestrating the events. You must understand, he says in verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Today, the timing of the Lord, how providential it was, how God had to supersede circumstances to get this to happen. As far as we know, there have been five censuses recorded in Scripture. This is the fifth one. 
but this is the first one of its kind or before or since. The inhabited earth, the whole inhabited earth. They took a census of them. Caesar, what are you doing? And you'd ask him, Caesar would probably say, I don't know, I just had this thought. Where'd the thought come from? God's orchestrating it. The timing had come for Jesus to be born. And as far as we know, they, they had to go over there because that was where Joseph was from, as the scripture tells us. And look at verse five and six of that chapter. I just wanna make sure you understand this. He says, he, in order to register along with Mary, who is engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now, now think, think, think. Get up in your tree. I challenge you, get in a tree and think about this. Understand something. She's about to give birth to a baby. They're in Nazareth and they're traveling to Bethlehem. Do any of you understand what I'm trying to say? You just don't do that. You don't take a woman who's great with child and make a long journey at that particular time of her life. But they did because of a census that was ordered by Caesar. Providentially, God had to supersede circumstances to get them over to Bethlehem. I remember when Stephanie was born and Oh my goodness. I called Diane, I said, are you okay? She said, no. I said, what do you mean no? <laughs> you know, it's like, you, you know this event's gonna take place, but you'd never think it's really gonna happen. And I had the church bus. I had a group out doing a church census. <laughs> and I called her and I just left the kids out there and drove the church bus home. And I got home on a dead end street and I got Diane and then I realized my car was at the church. And I couldn't find a car to borrow one, so I had to take her to the hospital to have Stephanie on the church bus. And I couldn't drive that thing very well anyway, especially to turn one around, about 60 foot long. And I ran through about three yards. I just had to ask them to forgive me, but I had to get that bus turned around. I was on a dead end street headed the wrong way. And got there and the doctor you know, said, thanks Wayne, really appreciate your sensitivity bringing Diana to the hospital on the church bus. Had to cross two sets of railroad tracks. It's amazing, it didn't happen right there on the bus. But there's an anxiety about that time of your life. There was no different with Mary. Mary was great with child. While she was there, the days were numbered to where she would have the child. So you've got to see the providential timing of the Lord to order them to go by Caesar, to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's where the prophecy said it would take place. But also it was prophesied. Not only promised, not only was it providential, but it was prophesied, verse 11, for today, don't you, in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ. The Lord. The city of David is Bethlehem. That's where David was born. That's where David was anointed king over Israel, as Samuel tells us. Joseph was of the family line of David. It says in verse 3, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. He had to go there. By law, he had to go there. And so God had prophesied that it would happen in Bethlehem, five miles south of Jerusalem. If you've never been to Israel, I hope you can go with me sometime. But if not, if you ever get over there, you're going to find out how close things are. Somehow in America, we think, I mean, it's further from here to my house than it was from Jerusalem to, to Bethlehem, only five miles south of the city. Out of 333 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the advent of Christ, so many of them were fulfilled just in his birth and particularly in the place of his birth. If you want to turn to Micah chapter five and verse two, if you don't want to, I'm going to read it for you. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, now listen to the prophecy, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now when the Magi came a couple years later, then they went to Herod. They'd watched the stars. They'd studied the papers of Daniel. And they came and they said, hey, where is this Christ? Where is the king of the Jews? Herod didn't like those sound, the sound of those words because he's the king of the Jews. He said, what do you mean? And he's born. And so Herod said, wait a minute, let me get my scribes in here. And he got the scribes. He says, where is he supposed to be born? And they quoted Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. They knew exactly where he was supposed to be born. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It was prophesied he'd be born in Bethlehem. You say, well, Wayne, now what's a big deal? Folks, come on. The known world to the people of that day were three, they knew three countries, or basically three continents. One was Europe, they knew of that. They knew of Asia, and they knew of Africa. But out of all three of the known world at that time, Asia was chosen. But Asia has many countries. One of them was a little country called Palestine, a little country called Palestine. And it's Palestine that was chosen. But in Palestine, there are three districts, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, which one? And they selected Judea. But in Judea, there are many villages, which one? Bethlehem. And what had the Bible said? And when you start narrowing it down and realizing, man, from Genesis 3.15, the seed of a woman will be born someday. And then the timing of the Lord, when it pleases the Lord, and then Luke chapter two, the announcement, challenges you folks to understand this is the word of God. And you've got to wrestle with that. It's the immaculate birth of Jesus, the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus on this earth. A miracle, a miraculous, something man could never explain. But God came to be born on this earth. Now that's the focus of Christmas. Get you a tree stand. Climb up in a tree and spend some time thinking about this. When all the other thoughts in your brain are gone, I want to tell you something. It could make this Christmas the best one you've ever experienced when you get all the clutter out of your mind and get your focus back on the celebration for the miraculous birth of Jesus. It'll challenge you. But the second thing it'll do, Christmas will do, it will convict you. And I want to show you that. In verse 7 of Luke chapter 2, the senseless crime of Christmas. You know, this is what convicts us, the senseless crime of Christmas. In, in verse 7, there's a verse that has sort of rattled people for years and centuries, made them angry. It says in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now the word for manger there is the word for a feeding trough. That's amazing, isn't it? The one who came to be the bread of life, the one who came who says, You must eat of me and, and drink of my blood, the one who said that, is laid into a feeding trough. That's what the word means. It's at, it's at the far end of a stable, and it would either be uh, hooked to the wall, made out of the wall, or somehow set there. It's where they put the food for the animals to eat. The word for in, kataluma, has the idea to be to unloose. And now we don't know really what these ends so much were like. You think of days in, it's kind of holiday in. No, 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 no. But it was a place for travelers who also had their animals with them. Term unloose. We still kind of use that today, don't we? You know, you, don't you love to go someplace, especially home, and just shut the door and just whew, unwind. Just unloose. Just sit, turn everything. I have a pair of shorts at home. That Dinah, if she ever catches me wearing them in public, will kill me. But I, I love them. I mean, I've had them forever. Hey, let me ask you, how many men in here have something like that you put on? You go, ha, ha, do it, do it. See, da, da, da. Watch all the hands, all right? 
<laughs> and I put that stuff, I love, especially on when Sundays are over and all the preaching's done and everything else is done and I know Bill understands this and others who have, who have done it and you come in and you say, Whoa, and you unloose this demonic thing around your neck and you get all this stuff off and you just want to relax. That's what the word had to do with. They, would say, they didn't have all that. They'd unloose their robes, unloose their sandals. They would unloosen their oxen and, and different animals they'd have with them. But the, the stable was set aside, of course, for the animals. And in the, the manger, or the stable, was a manger, which was that little feeding trough. But the phrase I'm talking about is a phrase you know of, because there was no room for them in the end. Has that not angered people through the centuries? The crime of Christmas that ought to just convict every one of us. No room for him. But before you start throwing rocks at this innkeeper, for not having room, for being filled up, for not realizing that this was the Christ child to be born, understand, get up in your tree stand and put your thinking cap on and just think about it. Just don't throw rocks at him. He's the epitome of what Israel was like. The whole nation of Israel did not expect. They were ignorant of the way Jesus was gonna come to this earth. Even the disciples, you know what they expected? They expected him to come in on a white horse. He's going to one day. <laughs> but they got, they got a little ahead of themselves. You see, they thought he was going to come in and kick the Gentiles out and set up the kingdom and, and who's going to be the right and who's going to be on the left. But oh no, he came in very poor, poor circumstances. Peasants. Joseph and Mary were just peasants. And he came that way and was born in a stable. Come on, this is not the Messiah. He was ignorant of even what the scriptures had to say. Last week we were together, Wednesday night, we talked about the Magi. You know, I, I thank God for the Magi. They paid attention to what God's Word had to say. The word Magi refers to the wise men or priests or whatever you want to call them that were over in either Babylonia the, or, or, or the Medes or the Persians. And you know, all of that was the same area because the Babylonians conquered Israel and then the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon and then, of course, Greece and then Rome. And so it all came from the same area. They came from the east. Now, what in the world were these magi doing? Coming on, they studied the stars, they saw the star, but they also had something else to go on. You know what it was? It was the Daniel papers. It was the book of Daniel. Canonized later on in the scripture. They had that. It had been written long before that time. And it was in that area of the country. Remember, Daniel was one of the wise men at that, at that time when he was taken in captivity by the Babylonians. They paid attention to what God had to say. And the whole nation of Israel was sound asleep and missed it. They didn't understand when he was going to be there, and they certainly didn't understand how he was going to come. So let's not throw a rock at the innkeeper. He didn't know. He was ignorant of who this was that was being born in that stable. But not only was he ignorant spiritually, you can't really throw too many rocks at him because the whole nation was. The thing I want you to see also, he, the indifference that he had towards the situation. Now think with me for a second. Let's push all the spiritual reasons out of the way and see what a crime this was because here is a pregnant woman. Folks, there's a need right in front of you. But the man was so calloused, he would not empty a room and put them in there so she could have her child. He put them in the stable. Just the indifference of the man. I'll tell you something, folks. If you're ignorant of what the Word of God says, you're going to be indifferent to others because the only thing you can think about is yourself anyway. And so why we throw rocks at this man? He's just nothing different than the 20th century, is he? At Christmas time. People are indifferent to what the Word of God, are ignorant of what the Word of God has to say. People are indifferent towards others that are around them. They're self-centered. So what's any different than that? But not only that, I think he had interest for his own pocketbook. You know, you think about it and just get in your tree stand. Get in your tree stand. Think about it. <laughs> One lady came out <laughs> the first service and 
She has a big old tree in her yard, but she's up there. I mean, I'm not going to tell you who it is. She's older than dirt. I think she's older than Haywood. And she came out. And she said, I can get up the tree, but you think I can get down? <laughs> I don't mean go. Hey, it might not hurt you. Just get up in the tree and think about this. Here's a guy who's an innkeeper, all right? Caesar has made a decree. Now, personally, that's going to be very lucrative for his pocket because he knows that everybody who has to come back to that city is going to have to stay somewhere and most likely going to stay at his inn. So here's an old boy that's putting money in his pocket with the people coming in and staying at his inn. But here comes, and it overwhelms me that Jesus, I just love him for this, that he came with poor parents. He didn't come in in his Learjet, get out at the side and order a limousine. He came in, poor parents, shabbily, probably shabbily dressed. When he came up, that innkeeper probably looked at him and thought, well, I see he sees the need, but hey, these people probably can't even pay. I'll put them in the stable. More interested in what he can put in his pocket than even being sensitive to the needs of a pregnant woman at that time. Even if he was ignorant of Scripture, it tells you a little bit about the times. I'll tell you what, folks, the more I look at this, the more it convicts me. Christmas time. You want to walk out to the mall and see how ignorant people are of Scripture? In fact, they were telling me after the service today, and I haven't seen it. I think it was on CNN, one of the, one of the nation, national news programs. Uh, somewhere in the country where there's a big glass building and somebody is seeing an image of the Virgin Mary. And everybody's coming and paying money and they can't even park the cars. And people are weeping when they look at it, thinking the Virgin Mary has come with a message. Then why did she call the very child that lived within her her Savior? I'm telling you folks, ignorance, the ignorance of people in this day. Same thing. How many tapes, how many tape libraries do we have these days? And, and, and I mean, anything, books, computer programs. I remember one day I couldn't find an interlinear that was small. I, I wanted something to carry my briefcase. I said, surely, I've seen them before. And I looked everywhere. Finally found somebody over at AMG that traded me out one. That's how I got it. But I called the company that put these things out. And I said, why is it that you're not putting these things out? And they said, hey, they're not selling anymore. So we quit printing them. People are willfully ignorant in our country, folks. They are willfully ignorant. They don't want to read. Tell them on television or tell them some other way. They're not going to get in there and look for themselves. Ignorant. That's why Christmas is so sorry anymore. It's, it's lost its whole meaning. It's not challenging, but it's very convicting when you think about how many people are just ignorant of what this season is all about. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world had to be the lamb born before the foundation of the world. And we celebrate his birth because we know what that led to, his crucifixion, which gave us our faith even this day. But yet people are ignorant, willfully ignorant. Well, not only that, people are indifferent. <laughs> I'm not even going to illustrate that. I'm just going to ask you to go by the mall for two hours and give me a call if you think anything different. They are indifferent. You ever notice what Christmas has gotten to be? <laughs> Worst day of my life when I found out I was Santa Claus. But you know, you know what Christmas has gotten to be? It's gotten to be giving gifts that you can't afford to people that you don't even like. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's nothing different. Even in their families have gotten that way, hadn't it? Well, how much did I give this one? Oh, golly, I didn't give them this one this much. Well, oh, man, we're already on the credit cards, but we got to do this. You don't know how they'll feel if they don't get something. And, and the whole thing. I'm kind of glad that 
little Holland. Y'all, by the way, y'all know that I was a grandfather. I have a little granddaughter. <laughs> She's eight months old. I want to tell you, this is the perfect time of the year. She is loving everything, sitting up and just looking and laughing and recognizing you and all that kind of good stuff. I'm so grateful she's at the age she is. You know why? Because children that age, <laughs> they don't get entangled with all the stuff. They just like the, the boxes that stuff comes in. I mean, you, you can get them anything. They're going to throw it away anyway and play at the box. I mean, they're just, like, they're, just, they're just simple. We've lost it, folks. The whole focus of Christmas has shifted gear because people are ignorant of what the Word of God has to And I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians. But not only that, they're indifferent. They could give a rip about anybody but they do what they do just because they have to do it. But not only that, they're also interested in what can, they can get in their own pocket. And it convicts you. Just thinking about Christmas, this conviction. There was no room in the end. And there's very little room in people's hearts these days for him to rule and for him to reign. The supernatural circumstances of Christmas, challenges. The senseless crime of Christmas convicts us. But the special claim of Christmas comforts us. I like this part of it. This is the better part. Luke 2, 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. The word Savior has to mean to rescue, to deliver. There might be somebody here today, you never know. Somebody might be sitting here saying, save from what? I've never understood this. Why did Jesus have to come? To save me from what? Look with me in Romans chapter 5. I'm glad you asked that question. You said, I didn't ask that question. Yeah, you did. You just know. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I want you to see this. I'm not going to preach Romans again. We'll do all the verses around it. Just want to remind you of something this morning, just in case you've missed it. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, he says, just as through one man, one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Every man is born into Adam, infected with the disease of sin, the virus of sin. You know, this Ebola virus that everybody's talking about, it scares you half to death. They made a movie, The Outbreak, I think. There's another thing they did. Some guy wrote a book called The Hot Zone. If you ever get it, you can get it on tape. And I want to tell you, I flew up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was going over to Wausau, Wisconsin, on one of the meetings. And I, I just, when I rented the car, I just took these two tapes with me. I wanted to, I'm better at listening than I am reading. I don't like to read long books. And, so I just put it on the tape player. Oh, folks. The Ebola virus is a serious thing. I mean, it ought to make us all realize we walk by faith because in this world, how quickly something like this could outbreak. And seven out of nine people die within the first six days. And the way they die is absolutely awful. I won't even get into that. And folks are concerned and scientists get in their laboratories and they start finding cures. But what I want to share with you is there's a worse virus than that. It's the virus of sin. All men are born into it. And there is no cure except for what Jesus did for us on the cross. There is no other cure. Now, I'll tell you, something might want to start comforting you is the fact he's a Savior has been born. Christ the Lord has been born. The one promised, the one prophesied, the one that was providentially, had God had to move providentially to bring about the timing of his birth in order for him to die for us on the cross that he might be our Savior. Now, listen, if you're here this morning, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, one or the other. It's, no, it's none of these things of, see, when you're in Adam, you can't get out of Adam. You were born in Adam. There's no way you can work yourself out of it. You say, well, well brother, brother well, I talked to a guy one day, I said, you're going to heaven when you die. He said, well, I sure hope so. <laughs> That's real good. What are you basing your hope on? Well, I've been a good person, and I've tried to do good things, and I've given money to the church, and I try to come, at least on Christmas, and I do all these things every year. And I'm thinking, Isaiah, the greatest prophet of Israel, 
said of their good works. He said, you take every good work we've ever done, stack it up, and in God's sight, our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags. There's no hope for a person born in Adam except for what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. He's the Savior of the whole world. He came to do what man couldn't do. He lived the perfect life. He, 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 full, he said, I didn't destroy the law, I fulfilled it. And then he did something else. He went to the cross and paid our sin debt. An innocent sacrifice was given all through the Old Testament, but that never did. It would only cover their sins for one year. For atonement, for remission of sins, it had to be a perfect sacrifice. It couldn't be just innocent. It had to be perfect. And it couldn't be an animal. It had to be a man. So God became a man so he could go to the cross and do what no other man could do and pay our sin debt. And when he resurrected from the dead, then he vindicated who he was, ascended, glorified. And now when I put my faith into him, Lord, I'm in Adam. I can't get out of Adam. Save me, Lord. I put my faith into what Jesus did for me on the cross. I know that he's your son. Then what happens is what he did is written to my account and no longer am I guilty. I have been justified by putting my faith into Christ. Savior of the world. That ought to comfort you, friend. We have a Savior who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, it's the special, it's that special claim of Christmas that comforts us. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But oh, oh, there's one more thing, Romans 6, 23 says, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word Savior, soter, comes from the word sozo. It has the idea of being rescued from something that you were totally helpless to get out of. Years ago, I went canoeing on fast white water. I'd never done this before. Did not recognize the danger. It was a, a, a river out in Texas, and it was at flood stage. About, I forgot how many cubic feet per second. And we tried to canoe this thing for about 25 miles. I have never known fear like I knew it that day. I, they put me in the front of the canoe for some reason. I've been in the back of the canoe all week long, but we hadn't been canoeing very dangerous water. We got on this one. They shifted us because they said, you need to learn. That was a bad move because I'm a rather large person. <laughs> and the guy behind me wasn't. And so it throws the balance of the canoe off. And when you go into these fast currents, you have to catch it where V's. You see a V? You head the canoe right into it. And that's how you go through them. We hit that first V and all I remember, the water roaring. It was so deep and so wide and so big. Next thing I knew, I was thrown out of the canoe. I was in very, very cold water, which caused me to go numb immensely. immediately. I had a, a life jacket on, was made for people under five, six and weighed 100 pounds. And I, I was barely above the water, just barely my nose above the water, but I couldn't move. I was like, I was paralyzed, helpless. Caught in the current of that river pulling me downstream. That's exactly the way a person is when he's born in Adam. And all I could do was think to myself, I, somebody's got to help me. Something, God, you've got to do something. They had rife rasp, but the river was so wide, they threw it to me, but it didn't reach me. And I was caught in that current and just swept down the river, maybe over a mile. And there was a tree that had a limb. Thank God that he put a tree there with a limb hanging out over the river. And I saw it and realized the current was going to take me right up under it. And when it did, with, all, with what little energy I had left in my body, I reached up and grabbed that limb, and somehow the current with that limb swung me around into the eddy water, and I was able to roll up on the, on the bank. I had been rescued from that which I was helpless to get out of. That's what the word Savior means. It ought to comfort your heart. He died to save us from the penalty of sin, but not just the penalty of sin, the power of sin. 
Now, names are important. He's Christ. He's the Savior who is Christ our Lord. That's very, very important in the New Testament. His name was first Jesus. Let me show you. In Matthew 1, 21, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So that's what he's going to do. Jesus, he is going to save his people from his sins. But Christ means something else. It means the anointed one. It is the term that marks him as prophet, priest, and king that the Holy Spirit came upon without measure. Anointed power to accomplish what he says he was going to do. Jesus, what he's going to do. Anointed one, Christ, signifying that he was the only one capable of doing it, to become our Savior for all times. And I guess the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you challenged by Christmas? Has your focus gotten like mine? Have you been up a tree lately and just thought about it? Get off by yourself and think about what this season is all about. It ought to challenge you. If you believe the Word of God to be what it says it is, the miraculous birth of Christ ought to challenge every one of us in here. And to accept that means you've got to accept the rest of it. Uh, what Colossians says that he is our life. What Ephesians says that he'll be your strength. What Philippians says that he is the sufficiency that we're looking for. Because if it's true that he was, that this part is true, this part is true, and that part is true, and that part is true, and you've got to believe it all, and you're challenged by Christmas. But are you convicted this morning, as I was when I was studying this, at the ignorance some of us have even towards what it's all about because we don't give time of day to the Word of God, just like this man and the innkeeper? And that, therefore, we're indifferent to the people around us, interested only in what we can get out of it. But are you comforted that he's your Savior? You know, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul says, I can't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to you. <laughs> when I first read that, I thought, do what? Now, come on, Paul. You're writing to believers. But I want to tell you something, folks. Christmas, Christmas has a meaning for believers far beyond. Because, you see, the good news is he never said I could be anything. But he always said he would be that in me. And when you move from square one to square two, you begin to realize that salvation, the initial being born again, the initial justification, that's just step one. That's the beginning. It's not an end. And it grows from there. And there's so much more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was a minister for eight years before I came to know Christ. <laughs> it's good to have saved ministers, you know. It just kind of helps. But once I got saved, God showed me. And by the way, Christmas unless I just get so unfocused, has never been the same. There are times when I've just gotten so focused on the world and debt and everything else that I lost the meaning of it. But it's never the same when you get saved. But not only that, about six weeks later, I went from ignorance to arrogance. I thought I had it all together and God had to show me I can't. He never said I could. And I began to find my, my sufficiency in Christ. It's not up to me to live like Christ. It's Jesus being Jesus in me. And I begin to realize not only has he delivered me from the penalty of sin, he's delivered me from the power of sin, myself, my flesh. And all I've got to do is say yes to him. But not only that, one day he's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. Christmas is a celebration, not a season. It's a celebration of an advent, advent that's miraculous. It challenges you, it convicts you, and it'll comfort you. If you'll just get up in a tree and just think about it. Just think about it. Just think about it. I challenge every one of you in here. Take Luke 2, 1 through 11. Before Wednesday, find a good hour to two hours by yourself that nobody can bother you and just meditate on those scriptures and, and see if it doesn't change your whole thinking this year. Christmas, folks, is a celebration. Some of you in here may not get any gifts and you feel slighted. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because probably more than we want to know. 
But let me tell you something. To those of you that feel that you just don't get anything for Christmas, nobody cares about you, let me just shout it as loud as I can. No, I won't do that. Jesus Christ is the greatest gift you could ever get. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Finish it with me. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who needs anything else? Father, we just thank you so much for just helping us to refocus. Thank you, Father, for Christmas. Thank you, Lord, that it's not a season, really. It's a celebration. You're